welcome to Nobody Told Me That, your source for candid business talk and stories. Your host is speaker and author Teresa Duncan. Sit back, buckle up, and hang on. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode of Nobody Told Me That. And I love having my friends on. Always, always. You guys know I have another one that I found out in the wild and said, you need to come on the podcast. And I just love her. So Rachel Wall is here from Inspired Hygiene. What's up, Rachel? Hey, Teresa. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I have been bugging all my friends to come on the podcast and Rachel finally relented. So oh, whatever. <laughs> no. I've been wanting to come on the podcast for a while. It's amazing. So you can see our, our rhythm here. It's going to be a fun podcast here. So first of all, we are in this virus COVID time. What's going on in North Carolina? How's it going in your state? I think it's good. I think we are actually starting to see a little flattening of the curve, as they say. And our stay-at-home order was supposed to lift today. So it was in place March 26th. It's supposed to lift today. I haven't checked the news today, so I don't know what the state of that is. But I wouldn't be. I think we all have just assumed that it's going to go a little bit longer. So that's where we are right now. It's beautiful. The weather is amazing, which has been such a blessing through all of this that we're all able to get outside. But yeah, I think I think where we are, I live in Charlotte. Our schools, uh, they haven't announced it yet, but I think they probably won't go back to school for the end of the year. I think we're just kind of trying to ride this thing out. And I think my prediction at Inspired Hygiene, like we have coaches that are all over the country, but we decided we want to start a pool. You know, like when someone in the office is pregnant and you pick yeah. the day and the weight and all of that. Like we're gonna pick, we're gonna pick the day that that dentists are, are allowed to open. And I think here in North Carolina, now again, you guys are gonna be listening to this probably in July. No, no, like you look crazy. <laughs> but I, think, I think in a month, I think dentists will be open mid-May here. Okay, all right. Yeah. So mid-May, my prediction. Where stay at home until June 10th here in Virginia? Yes, I heard that. It's crazy, but the. ADA is recommending April 30th to go back. And that's what okay. all the Virginia offices are doing. But I don't, I'm sorry. I don't believe that. I, I'm with you with mid-May, but, you know, throw me in at, at May 25th. How about that? Okay. Put my May name 25th. in the pool. Okay, we're going to put your name in the pool. <laughs> right around Memorial Day. Right around Memorial Day. So you'll have one okay. last vacation, one last barbecue, and yeah. then you're back into it, I think. so. I think that actually is Memorial Day. So you might want to pick a different day. Maybe the 26th. 26th. <laughs> Okay, so so let's go ahead and hop into it. It's so it's crazy, crazy times. But in all of this, last year something came out. Well, I think it was even two years before, but something came out that I know a lot of offices were in the middle of implementing and some even discovering. Some offices still don't know about it. And I've been wanting to ask you to do a session for my listeners where you kind of explain it. And that's the new guidelines from the American Academy of Periodontology. And I believe the world Congress of Implantology yes. or something like that. It's, it's like the big body, right? The big imperial body. A lot of my listeners may not know about it. So if you could explain that, and then I want to get into more of the advanced stuff, which is what are we doing with that in our practice? Because I don't want people to lose sight of this with all of this COVID stuff. It's going to be so important documentation wise. So what is it? What the heck? Why? All of that stuff. Yeah. So actually, I want to address something you just said before we get into that. That's okay, Teresa, is I've had some questions like, okay, so if we're really busy when we go back to work and we have all these patients kind of knocking down our doors and you and I have some different opinions about whether or not that's going to be the way it is, we'll see. You know, do we try to shorten hygiene time and just get them in and like 
not do our peri exam and all that. And my, my response to that is a really loud, like pleading, no, do not abandon your diagnostic duties. Do not abandon that. Like keep your systems in place. Yes, it is going to look a little bit different, but please keep these things in place because your patients still deserve and expect that you are doing a very thorough hygiene visit. And that includes more than scaling, right? That includes the medical history review, the oral cancer screening, the perio screening, the restorative screening, all of those things that give your patient that ultimate hygiene experience. And also, by the way, it drives treatment into the practice, right? I mean, we're there to care for patients and identify disease and treat it. So if we're not identifying it and recommending treatment, then we're not serving our patients at the level we should, nor are we serving our practice. So please do not not abandon your diagnostic duties at this time. So the AAP, so this World Congress is the, the American Academy of Periodontology, the AAP, and the European Federation of Periodontology. So they came together and created this new periodontal classification. So, you know, most of us remember the case types from a long time ago or the class types, right? Class one, class two, early, moderate, beginning, perio, all of those things. And there certainly are, I I don't know what the stats are right now, but if I had to guess, I'd say probably 25% of practices are actually employing this new classification system right now. I do think it is important that we all move to that and it's a process, right? It is, it is a process and it's a learning process. And I love being able to speak to administrators as well as clinical team members and owners about this because it's always as with everything, we got to all be on the same page and speak in the same language. So the, and Teresa will put all this in the show notes, but what I want you to do is go to the AAP's website, which is perio.org. And I'm going to walk everybody through this. I know you can't see this right now, but I'm just going to kind of verbally walk you through this. But you're going to go to period.org slash 2017 WWDC. And this is kind of your headquarters for everything about this new classification system. And there are probably 20 papers here that if you're having a hard time sleeping, this is your solution. And I like this stuff because I'm a nerd, right? And we teach it. So we got to know it. But you don't have to read all the papers. But I want you to kind of scroll down lower into this page. And there's uh, a couple things to download. One says downloadable practice resource, the chairside guide to periodontitis staging grading. You absolutely need that one. Download and print that out. Laminate it for all of your hygienists. And then the other one that's really great is at the bottom, it says disease classification FAQs. That one is also super helpful and will really answer a lot of kind of the questions. And we'll go through some of those too. Essentially, I believe based on the information that I have heard from the AAP, there's a video on here that's actually pretty helpful of kind of, you know, the behind the scenes and why they did this. But what I've gathered is that this was, A, we needed an update. It had been 1999 was the last time we had a period classification system put in place. Oh, so, wow. That that long. Wow. Yes. Yes. So it was time, right? We needed something new and improved. And I also think that with the oral systemic connection and our knowledge of that now, they really wanted to include some risk factors, right, that were outside of the dental realm that influence periodontitis disease onset and also disease progression and also response to treatment. The other thing, yeah. Rachel, let me just break in here. So is that in response to us realizing all these different links to all these systemic diseases and 
you know, the risk factors that come along with like diabetes and obesity and all that? Is that why they had to change that? I think so. I think they just wanted to, you know, make sure that we were taking those things into account. And before the state, the classification was really just, what are we looking at today? What does this patient look like today? And what attachment and bone have they lost? What teeth have they lost? Why do we think they've lost those teeth? And then that's how we're going to classify the patient. It didn't really address like uh, prognosis or how we might expect the patient to respond to treatment. So this new system gives us a little bit more of that. Great. Okay, great. Yeah. I think another reason why they did this is to have the language be a little bit more understandable to the lay person, to the general public. So if you think about staging, disease staging, that's something that we're all fairly familiar with, right? If you've ever had anybody, you know, um, in your life that's had a serious illness, cancer is the one that always comes to mind, right? And they say, this is stage four, then we know that is very serious, right? It's going to require quick treatment. And also we know that the prognosis is a little less certain with certain types of treatment than if we had, you know, caught this disease and treated it at stage two, for example. So I think that's another reason why is because I think the general public understands that. And I think that is something that we can kind of translate that to with caution, right? We certainly don't want to alarm patients for saying, you know, you have stage four periodontal disease. It is serious. <laughs> but, you know, if we say, you know, if you think about stage four cancer, like we don't, I don't know that we can make that direct comparison, but I think there is some language around that as you might have heard you know, you might be familiar with the term stage when it comes to a disease progression. And so now we're using that similar terminology when we're looking at this, the state of your gum health and or gum disease. So Rachel, that's something that I think would need some coaching. I mean, like I even would have to sit around and think on how the admin should approach that because yes. we don't want to scare the patient. So if you come up with any really good language on that in the future, could you let me know? And I'll definitely pass it on because you're right. We don't want to scare them. And, you know, you say cancer and people just kind of like, forget it. We just gave them like the worst news, even if it's not true, you know, even if we're just making a comparison. Yeah. Okay, good. So I do think we just have to be aware of that. And we are con continually evolving with this. We've developed some worksheets that we share with our clients that makes this easy. And I, I, I want to work on something to even make it more simple because this is, the only downside with this is that it can get complex unnecessarily. So it can get unnecessarily complex and confusing and, and we overthink it, right? We're working on just continually trying to simplify the process. I guess it would get even more confusing too if you've got multiple providers that maybe see this in yes. a different light. I mean, I think the goal was to make it uniform so we have one guideline, but I still think it's open to interpretation depending on the, the clinician's I guess, point of view Absolutely. or aggressiveness, I guess. As is true with any type of diagnosis in dentistry, right? It is it, you know, there are different philosophies and, you know, one dentist sees a, a, a cavity on a premolar and says, okay, we're going to, we're going to do an MOD. And the other says, no, I would never do an MOD on a premolar. I'm going to do a crown, right? To strengthen that too. And I'm not here to say what's right or wrong in that particular instance. Everyone just has some different interpretation that's going to be still going to be true. And we'll get into some of that as we kind of step into this. So I'm going to do kind of basic introduction to this. Great. So the first page with those, that downloadable guide, the first page is going to be your staging page. This is kind of your table 
where it guides you to the stage of periodontitis that the patient is in. One thing that you won't see on here is you won't see that it mentions, it won't give you a parameter around bleeding because we're only staging and grading a patient if they have active periodontal disease. So if they have active periodontal disease, they're going to be bleeding. Bleeding is our sign of active infection. You're not going to be staging and grading, in my opinion, you're not going to be staging and grading a healthy patient, right? This is, these are going to be patients. These are That's be what patients. I was going to ask. Okay. Cause so somebody comes in healthy, like, you know, me, yeah, <laughs> um, so I healthy. come in. Yeah. So I'm not going to have any, any stage written in my notes. It's going to just say, you know, healthy tissue and all that kind of That's stuff. Right. Okay. That's something that I don't think I realized. I thought every patient was going to have some sort of stage. That's Okay, that's big. I didn't realize that. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, because the staging is really based on the amount of attachment loss the patient has experienced. So this is the stage is where we're looking at what has happened in the past. Where is the patient now? What has happened in the past that's led them to the disease state that they're in right now? Okay, so it is mostly based on attachment loss. They're looking at three things. Severity, right? What is the severity of attachment loss? which most often translates to bone loss. This is, this is the piece that can get really, we can get in the weeds, especially with clinicians, because we talk a lot about like, well, where does the, where did the tissue originally attach? Well, we don't know. Where is the tissue attached now? Well, it's in a dark hole. So we still don't really know. (laughs) So the severity and a periodontist might have a different opinion. I'm going to, I'm giving you mine as an educator, you know, and, and coach of, How do we establish this practical use of the staging and grading guide? So the first thing that we teach is if you do a a complete periodontal screening, that should include charting recession, okay? And one of the things that administrators can look for, and you can cite Inspired Hygiene, and you can share this podcast with your clinicians, is because I did this for years and years and years, because probing is very tedious and time-consuming. And then going back to measure recession and for patients and bleeding, and mobility, and pus, and all those things, it it is very time-consuming, and it is very detailed. So do you have to go back? So you do the the probing. This is where I don't, I think us administrators are like, what the heck happens back there? So you do the the probing. Do you go back and chart the frication and all of that, or are you doing it all at the same time? It depends. If you have like a voice-activated charting system, you might be able to do some of that at the same time. But typically, and even with that, you might go back because it makes it a lot easier to go back and and add things. Typically, what most hygienists will do, particularly if they're charting by themselves, right, like they're measuring and then they're entering into the computer, is they will chart pocket depths first usually. They might plug in some bleeding if the bleeding is immediate and it happens right then. But then they're typically going to go back and add some of these other things. They're going to add for patient and all that. And what we teach is at least once a year, that whole complete screening should be done, right? At least once a year. And from a benefits point of view, what I teach in classes, and this is good for your clinician or your clients to know, is that the carriers are looking for complete probing to be at once a year. Like if you send it in for scaling and root planning or osteosurgery and it's not within one year, they're not going to approve it. So that's another reason, you know, don't want to be insurance driven, but insurance friendly. And if this is a standard of care anyways, we should be doing it. Absolutely. And then on the alternate, you may just chart bleeding and probing, right? Bleeding is our sign of active infection. Probing is our like easiest, easiest to see changes, right? Between bleeding and probing. So on the alternate, I would suggest charting, uh, charting out, you know, 
bleeding and probing. And again, you might have healthy patients that have one to two millimeter pocket depths and no bleeding anywhere. And those patients are going to chart once a year, unless they've had some type of health event that, you know, you, you're aware of. So let's say we've gathered all that information and we've identified that this patient has some recession. So if you imagine you're looking at a periodontal charting and you see tooth number three on the facial and right in the center of that facial, you know, tooth image is a three. That's indicating three millimeters of recession. But what, and that's what I did for years and years. But now recently with us needing to document much more fully to basically prove the case that the patient has periodontal disease, we as hygienists really need to be charting that three millimeters. Assuming that three mil, there's a three millimeter band of recession on the facial, we need to be charting that on the distal, the facial, and the mesial. Otherwise, what it looks like is it just looks like there's a really thin, narrow percation event on the direct facial of that tooth. But if we're seeing a band of recession, then we need to be charting it in all those areas, okay? So that's just one little tip that I think is going to help when we're looking at attachment loss. No, that's great. Yeah, because that's another clinical point that we don't, you know, we don't know. So that's interesting about the band and, okay, great. Thank you. If you see that and you see there's recession, then you can immediately go to this first line of the staging and grading, the staging table, which you will have printed out, right? You'll have to show this in the show notes and you can kind of go along with this. You're going to immediately see in this area of greatest loss. So I'm looking at what is the tooth that has the greatest amount of recession? Oh, right here, I have one that actually has four millimeters. Then that's going to put me immediately into that stage two, stage two periodontitis. Then I'm going to be looking down at some of these other factors. Stage three now includes they've lost a tooth or two to periodontitis, right? That's going to shift them to a higher stage. And then when we look at complexity or these local factors, that's where the pocket depth kind of comes in. And so you're going to just be kind of layering, we call it layering the evidence for for a diagnosis, right? So we're layering, right? They've got four millimeters of recession. That means they have that much attachment loss. That's easy to see there. If we don't have recession, then we have to go to this next piece of the staging, which is looking at radiographic bone loss and almost doing a measurement of that. And that's where it gets really, in my opinion, subjective because we're looking at a, an image and we're not really seeing the whole picture. If you have a 3D image, I think it's going to be a whole lot better and some type of measurement tool. But this is where we have to start kind of measuring radiographic bone loss. And so another piece Teresa, just to to your, all of your teaching is your x-rays have to be of diagnostic quality. If you cannot see the bone loss, the bone level on the x-ray, then that x-ray is not of diagnostic quality. You've got to take a different view. You've got to take a vertical bite wing, or you've got to take, I know PAs aren't ideal for measuring cradle bone loss, but there are some patients that have had so much bone loss that we're never going to get it on the bite wing. So we've, we've got to reveal that somewhere. We've got to show that somehow. So if they have recession, it's going to be real easy to, to see that attachment loss. If you don't have visible recession, then we're going to need to look at the x-rays and it gets a little bit trickier there, but we, that's one of the things that we teach us kind of how to measure. And you can read on this chart kind of how they, they tell you to do that. So you're gathering all of these things together to kind of figure out what stage they go in. And then at the very end, the hygienist is looking and saying, all right, this is localized or generalized disease. Or do I have a molar incisor pattern? This was typical in what we used to call 
early onset or juvenile periodontal disease, right, where there was the anterior, the incisors, and the first molars were were affected. So is this localized disease? Is it generalized disease? Or is it a molar incisor pattern? And then you've staged that patient. So with generalized, just want to be clear clear to the people listening, generalized is you see it throughout the mouth. Localized is you see it in one site or maybe two sites. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, I'm just explaining it, it's not all over the mouth. So the molar incisor, that's something that I'm pretty sure none of my people are aware of that. So what what that means though is those are the teeth are those teeth in particular are going to show the perio faster or is that what that is? Yes. And I'm going to say it depends on population. Some of you are going to see that more than others. It's not something that I saw that often in my career, but when you see it it's pretty obvious. Yeah, cuz there's everything looks fine on the x-rays and all of a sudden there are these vertical defects around the molars and the anteriors and typically that is a sign of an aggressive type of periodontal disease. Wow. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. So at this point now we've staged the patient, right? They're in typically stage two, three, or four is when we're going to start treatment. There is a stage one, but this is kind of tricky because we're looking at one to two millimeters of attachment loss. This might be your patients that actually you're going to be treating. Well, I was going to say you treat them with the gingivitis therapy, but really it, they should have no attachment loss if they're having gingivitis therapy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I will say that that stage one is a little tricky because, you know, if this patient has one millimeter of attachment loss that we see on the x-ray and they have less than four millimeter pockets, like are we really going to be putting that patient into scalar root planning? Probably not, but if they have bleeding, we need to address the bleeding. We need to figure out what the issue is and how to get that down. Because anytime there's bleeding, there's inflammation. So the stage two, three, or four is typically we're removing patients into some type of, you know, perinol therapy. The next stage is grading. So grading is, and I'm going to read this straight from this AAP document, grading aims to indicate the rate of periodontitis progression, responsiveness to standard therapy, and potential impact on systemic health. And so this is where it takes into account local deposits, like hard and soft deposits, plaque and calculus, takes into account patients that are smokers that have diabetes, and how old are they and how much bone loss have they had? Like how rapid does it appear that the disease has progressed? They advise us to start all patients at grade B. So get grade B is a moderate rate of progression, which is what would be typical, right? What you would typically experience or expect. And then you've got to look at these different factors, decide if you're going to move them down to a grade A, which is a slow rate of progression, or if you're going to move them up to a grade C, which is a rapid rate of progression. And so... Are you talking about progression meaning healing or progression meaning getting worse? Which which progression? Disease progression, which means the disease continuing to progress. Okay. Okay. So getting yes. worse. Okay. Continuing to progress. But this also does factor in, like, it, it gives us some clues about how this patient might respond to treatment, which still goes back. If I treat them, are they still going to see progression? There's two things. There's primary criteria, which is their bone loss, and there's this whole, like, formula of, the percentage of bone loss divided by their age. And honestly, that gets a little confusing. So we just say, I know, skip down to the to the modifiers. And the modifiers are smoking and diabetes. I think in the future, the World Federation will add some other modifiers. So there might be overall like medical conditions that might be modifiers and might affect disease progression. I think they will probably add some of that. But the ones right now are smoking and diabetes. So if we assume everyone's in a B, and now we're trying to prove that they go should go to A or C, if they're not a smoker, 
then that's one shift over to an A. If they smoke greater than 10 cigarettes a day, which I think is a pack a day, if they smoke more, is there 10 cigarettes a pack? I think. Gosh, I have no idea. So greater than 10 cigarettes a day. So let's say greater than a pack a day, they're immediately going up to a grade C. If they have diabetes, and their HbA1c is greater or equal to 7, they immediately go up to a C. So that means that we're either asking for that HbA1c or we're measuring it ourselves. Is that something you're recommending to your clients that we get on that, that we do it in office ourselves? We have not gotten to the point yet where we're strongly recommending that. Only just because I think we're, we're still researching like what's the best way to implement this and what are all the, the laws around this and how do we, yeah. But I think, I think it's a great idea. And at a, at the very minimum, anytime you see diabetes on a medical history, always at every visit ask, what was your last HbA1c? And that patient should know that number. If they don't, oh, yeah, that's yes, true. <laughs> if they don't know the number, then either their physician just said, oh, you're fine. You're doing great. And didn't tell them. And they didn't ask, or they're not being closely monitored. So if they don't know it, this is another way for you to help empower your patients as a healthcare provider and say, this is really important for your overall health. So next time you go to your physician, ask them, you know, they're going to do this HbA1c test, this blood test. And this is something that a diabetic should have done about once a quarter, right? They should have it. Oh, yes. They should have this done about every three months. And it is a snapshot of how well their blood sugar is controlled over those three months. So it's, it's more accurate than a fasting blood glucose, like taken on the day. It's a, it's a snapshot of overall. So those patients really should be under seven HbA1c. What we say when you're looking at grading, you're grading the patient, just jump down to these grade modifiers and ask yourself about smoking and diabetes, because that might immediately shift them up to a C. Then the next back up the chart is local plaque and calculus. If this patient has less plaque and calculus than you would expect to see based on the amount of bone loss, you're going to move them over to a C right? Which means they're going into a more of a rapid rate of disease progression. If they have less, uh, I'm sorry, if they have a lot of hard and soft deposit, but they've got, you know, early bone loss, they haven't been to the dentist in 10 years, they probably have a slow rate of progression. So that's kind of an easier way to grade patients. So we're giving them a stage and a grade And that should go in their clinical notes. So the grade will change over time, but the stage does not. Unless, do you do a reset? Like, do you do another comprehensive evaluation in a little bit? How do you? Great question. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) That's a great question. As we use this more and more, it will become more clear. But yes, I think the grade is more likely to change because the grade can be affected by things like oral hygiene, better management of diabetes, quitting smoking. I mean, those are three things, obviously, right now, you know, that we can see that could affect the progression of their disease. Now, they can't change the amount of bone that they lost. So that will still be there. And remember, when patients are in periodontal maintenance, one of the reasons why periodontal maintenance is so important, and it is different than a prophy, is because these patients are at risk. They're at a much higher risk for relapse. So when you have a patient that's gone through, and even if they're at a moderate rate of of disease progression based on this chart, like they're at a higher risk for that disease relapsing than a patient that has been in a prophy all their lives, right? A healthy patient that's been in a prophy all their lives. This is something that I, I, you and I have talked about over the year. I mean, we've known each other a long time over the years. We've talked about this. The the fact that 
if a patient comes out and says, well, that didn't feel any different than my regular, like that's a big red flag to me that there's not a lot of education going on. It's actually kind of a pet peeve Mm -hmm. for me because at the front, we shouldn't have to explain the clinician, what the clinician did. I mean, I just want to say if you have a hygienist, I hate to say this, but if you have a hygienist and your patients are always walking out saying that, then they're not doing what Rachel's saying, which is evaluating them properly based on their disease. And that to me is not a good way to provide care. And so I would say yes. And an alternate way to think about that too is because as providers, we have to believe in the value of the service we're providing before the patient will. So perhaps the hygienist, the hygienist or hygiene team in your practice, if that's what you're experiencing, they haven't had the opportunity to have someone facilitate a conversation about what is the value of periodontal maintenance. Because they have just gotten caught up in running through the schedule every day. And it's like, okay, I got another patient. And with this one, I'm going a little bit deeper. And their probings are going to be a little deeper. But other than that, it's, it's pretty much the same. So they're believing it's the same because they believe they're very thorough with the profi And they're very thorough with the perio maintenance. So it's one of those things, not being able to see the forest for the trees, is sometimes you got to take a step back and say, okay, let's just think about as providers is there a difference between how we are currently doing a perio maintenance and how we are currently doing a profi? And the answer might be no. And in which case, there's not a difference in value. So then you have to really identify how can you make those two services different? Is that something that you've had, like you've had to coach offices through that? Every, that almost every oh, really? Month. Yes. Really? With okay, Almost wow. every client is because they get into that debate of, Okay, do we keep the patient on perio maintenance? Do we alternate? Like, what do we do? I'm like, okay, so time out. Like, let's first, first, I, I take them to the coding manual. I'm like, read this, read this coding description, read this coding description. These are two different procedures. What stands out to you is different, right? Because we're billing according to the codes and what we do. So then we just have to start all over as what is included in periodontal maintenance? What is the value in periodontal maintenance? So part of the value is more frequent perio screening and charting right? So that has to be done. That's a whole point of perio maintenance, right, right? right? Is monitoring, but also accessing some residual pocket depth. So there's going to be patients that are going to be at a state of health, but they still have a residual five millimeter pocket depth. And it takes more expertise and time and work to get down into that pocket. Now they okay. should be healthy. So now we're going, we, there's a whole other set of conversations about around when do we reactivate a periodontal maintenance patient, right? They shouldn't, if they have active disease in multiple areas, they, you shouldn't feel, the hygienist shouldn't feel like they have to treat all of that in a period of maintenance. There is a point where patients need to go back through period therapy. It's unfair to the hygienist. I mean, ergonomically, right. all of that. So I, I get that yeah. completely. I have a question about the grading. What factor does dry mouth play in all of this? Is that listed in any of the literature? Like if they have it from a different, different, you know, the medications for other, other things, Mm -hmm. does that factor in anywhere? I would have to go back through honestly and look a little bit closer at some of the papers that were written about all of this, but dry mouth. So active periodontal diseases, it's a bacterial infection. So there still has to be bacteria and a susceptible host. And so even if they have dry mouth, if they have active disease, we're still going to classify it the same. It could be a modifier, perhaps. It just hasn't shown up on this grading scale yet. How about that? Got it. Okay. No, yeah. I like that. Because I, I I've always wondered about that. I have 
my uncle actually has really bad xerostomia that sometimes goes straight into burning mm. mouth. And it's just, I'm always, you know, it's, it's, I'm sending him biotin or, you know, telling him to go find it when he can. And, and that's, it, it's painful. I didn't, I've never known anyone with burning mouth. And so it's terrible to see. It really is. Okay. So we have the patient that has been graded. Where do we go from here? So to answer your question about, do we do this periodically? Yeah. If you're seeing changes in the patient in there, you know, these things that we talked about that could affect the disease progression, we certainly could change their grade. You're not going to have, and the FAQ document that I talked about earlier is going to answer some of those questions too, direct from the AAP. So you're not going to, for example, you're not going to have one part of their mouth be a stage three and another part be a stage four. We're taking the worst areas and we're identifying the stage based on that area. And so, yes, I think you probably could if they had some type of regenerative treatment, maybe they might go down a stage, but that's going to be really unusual for them to have a generalized, you know, unless they have some type of, you know, laser procedure that's going to create some type of new bone growth and things like that. I think you might, they might go up in a stage, they might get worse. Like, let's say you, you staged a patient today and they did not do treatment and they come back in a year, they could absolutely be at a higher stage of periodontitis. Okay, that's a great example. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Okay, so you've staged and graded the patient. Now you're going to be depending on your practice philosophy as to what type of treatment you're recommending. I think the one thing that you might say, hey, if we get a patient that's a stage four, then we're referring that patient to the periodontist. That could be one philosophy. It could be, hey, if we have a a patient that's stage three or four, then they're going to go into our laser therapy program. You know, when we're looking at the grading and we're seeing their smoker and their diabetic, we're probably going to need to have some other adjuncts besides just basic scaling and replaning, right? We're going to need to pull some other tools out of our tool belt because we know this patient is at a risk for a rapid progression of this disease and their immune system is suppressed or their immune, I should say their immune system is compromised because of these other factors. I don't know if you track this or not, but anecdotally, the, the offices that you're working with that do the laser-assisted perio, do they find better healing? Like, are you seeing that? I mean, what what's your opinion on that? So in my mind, there are a couple different camps, right? There's one that is the like laser-assisted surgical procedure that the dentists do. And there are a couple lasers, I think, that are approved to do that procedure right now. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen very clear clinical evidence that there can be bone regrowth. And there are some parameters around what makes that particular procedure effective. For example, the LANAP procedure is one that really is, is, works best when the patient is treated at the most infected state. So you wouldn't do scaling, you wouldn't do non-surgical scaling and root planning before you do that procedure. Okay. That's with a certain type of laser. laser. And then there's the other type of laser, which is, which is like, let's say a dial laser where the hygienist in certain states can actually use the laser to kill bacteria and kind of detoxify the pocket. In some instances, curatage some of that granulation tissue and things like that. And I do think that that, I think all of the adjuncts give the patient an advantage in healing, you know, whether it is some local antibiotics, the laser, a perioprotect tray, I think all of them are an advantage. It just, it, they work in different ways and they have different long-term results. But I do think because there are some bacteria that are very easily, easy to disrupt in the pocket, and there are some that get embedded in the soft tissue, 
and are resistant to scaling root planning and need some other mode of treatment to really attack those bacteria. So for my administrators out there, I mean, she's talking about bacteria and infection, and that's why it's really important for us to understand that because we tend to think, oh, they just have gum disease or, you know, they have to have scaling root planning. We kind of say that without understanding it, but there's actual infection going on in there and cleaning out that pocket, disinfecting. I mean, these are all terms that we use when we're trying to make someone healthy. So it is totally an infection. And I am always fascinated by all the bacteria you guys have to deal with, like there's P. gingivalis and there's, what is that? Mutans, strep mutans and all that kind of stuff. And one of the most fun classes I took was, oh gosh, way back in the day, way back in the day, Betsy Reynolds talking about all sorts of, you know, all this bacteria and stuff. And I just remember thinking, Ooh, all that's in the mouth, you know? (laughs) Here's the thing. It's in the mouth, but we have science that's showing that it's traveling to all these other parts of our bodies, right? It's been found in the carotid artery and the uterus, you know, with patients that are pregnant in the synovial fluid of joints, like this bacteria, when there is active infection, it is traveling and it is causing all kinds of issues in other parts of the body. And so, yes. And so it's important then, you know, the clinicians are creating the sense of urgency that the administrators carry that through right to their conversations of sense of urgency. And then though, if we're creating the sense of urgency, We've got to have somewhere to put those patients. (laughs) You read my mind because you deal with this, right? So so if you don't have those places blocked in the schedule and you're telling people that they've got a serious infection and you're like, okay, we'll see you in two months. Like, what did you just do? You just shot yourself in the foot with that. You know, the patient's like, well, it must not be that important. You must be a fan of them reserving spots for that. Absolutely. In fact, we do that with our clients before the coach ever goes into the office. We try to help them prepare their schedule. You know, once they establish, we help them establish a really clear protocol for moving patients into treatment, then they're going to need somewhere to put those patients. So we, yeah, we help them pre-plan their schedule. And, you know, and I hear all the time, well, we don't have the time to expand. We don't have this, we don't have that. And if you don't have the room to expand, then you're at capacity. If you're on a lot of PPO plans, that's a sign that you probably are doing okay. And you could probably drop a few. And if you have extra room, maybe it's time to get another hygienist. And then of course I hear doctors going, oh, I don't want to do another check and blah, blah, blah. But you, you walk them through why, how they can do it without re- feeling like they're on a hamster yes. wheel. And there are different ways to do that. You know, you can expand the capacity of your existing hygiene team by using a high level dental assistant and really establishing a team, team hygiene. You can add another hygienist and, you know, make sure that they are trained to your philosophies and and think of it too, we always tell doctors, I'm like, think of that exam, instead of thinking of it, of it as an interruption, it is an opportunity, right? This is an opportunity for you to build trust with the patient, for you to keep that patient in your practice long term. And it's an opportunity for you and your team to identify needs. Like that's why the patient's there, for you to identify if they have any treatment needs. I know that they think of it as a, sometimes as an interruption, but it really is an opportunity to grow the practice. It is. Yeah. And and different dentists, of course, will have, it depends on their mood, right? If it's right before, yeah, if it's right before lunch and they're hungry, they're like, oh, really? You know, so I, I get it. It's, it's tough being back there and doing that. And that's why I I love being able to bring like the snapshot of what's clinical up front. Uh, And more and more we're finding front office team members don't have clinical experience. You know, I think back in the day, it was easier to, you know, take a break and go back there and see what's going on. And the people I talk to, they don't have time to breathe up front. So it's, it's kind of, we're in a big hamster wheel. So (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but and this... there certainly is a, a point at which the dentist um, might be checking too many, doing too many hygiene checks, in which case there are ways also to structure the schedule to, you know, around prime time when the dentist does not want to be, you know, have to step away from care, you know, and other times where you can have more hygiene checks at one time. Yeah. Well, and some states allow you to not have a hygiene check at every visit or a dentist evaluation at every visit. So if you're not sure about that in your state, you may want to check yeah. into it. You know, if the patient's healthy, maybe they don't need to see the dentist every time they come in. That saves some time. And I think this really goes back to the conversation we were having, not just before we start recording, but at the very beginning where you said, we really need to pay attention to the timing of the, how much time we spend because our patient's going to be asking a lot of questions. And I'm really worried that you're going to have dentists and hygienists burn out very quickly because they're not going to take the time to spread out and and really make time to dig into the PPE talk and, you know, all of that stuff. I think there's going to be a lot more conversation about PPE than people expect. So you're speaking of now back to the COVID and when we reopen and that kind of thing. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, sorry. I took an off no, ramp. I, knew, I was following you. I know where you're going with that. And, and, you know, I've always, so here is just to be completely transparent. Here's my mind is kind of split in two is one is we're going to need more time because patients are going to have questions and they're going to need reassurance. And. I think they need to, once we get whatever PPE we're going to need, I think we need to take some pictures of ourselves and put it on social media and show our patients. We're going to look a little different. They need to know what it's going to look like before they come into the office, if at all possible, right? If you're going to have a screening station, they need to know that that's going to be in place. Like we've got to stay in constant communication with your patient. Even if they're not in your office, they need that from you. So yeah, I do think that one part of my mind is we're going to need a little more time. We're just going to be chatting a little bit more too, honestly, because like, what did you do during the quarantine? Are you guys okay? What's happening? There's just going to be some of that. And our patients are going to need that from us. And then the other part of my brain is like, oh my gosh, we've been shut down for two months. Like we got to keep this business viable and get the, and get the revenue going and stay productive. Perhaps for the first two to three weeks, you do schedule a little bit more time and, and you might have to, right? There might have to be buffers between patients. That's probably something that's going to be in place when we reopen is that, you know, it's going to be tricky for some of these large group practices that have 20 off, minimizing the number of patients. And are we going to, you know, what is the spacing going to look like? So we might have to have some of that anyway. Mm -hmm. So what that means then is we've got to be really diligent with our diagnostics and making sure we're identifying patient needs and presenting treatment to the best of our ability. I do worry though, that after the initial rush of people who, you know, are needing their teeth clean, I do worry about a slowdown with people just being concerned overall. I guess if that happens, I hope that it doesn't happen. But if it does, then this is a really good time to reevaluate everything we've been talking about and make sure that all those systems are in place. I think, and Rachel and I were talking about this before, I think we're all we're going to be busy in November and December just simply because people are going to be using their benefits and they're going to wake up and say, hey, I've you know got all these benefits to you. So I think we're going to be busy then. My fear is next year, if they don't have benefits, how are we going to remind them to come in? And hopefully you've made that important to people that they know they need to come in, right? Yeah, I think it's different. And you and I are, we're trying to like put on our crystal ball and stuff and then Part of me kind of wants to put the crystal ball in the corner because I don't even want to think about it, right? Yeah, and we just really don't know. I mean, it's it's going to just be yeah. different. But the thing is, we have to be prepared. 
I do think people like you and I and our colleagues, you know, speakers and consultant colleagues are, are really kind of telling the dentists like, hey, like there's a lot of stuff that you guys can get done. And we're doing that in our own businesses too. Like there's a lot of stuff to be done right now. And sometimes we're getting, we're getting the word back like, well, I furloughed all my team and I don't really want to ask them to work. And I'm kind of checking out for a couple of weeks, which I get, right? This has been mentally exhausting for everybody. Absolutely. So maybe you have kind of a, a reopen plan and then you have a post reopen plan that is, okay, so if we are trucking along, then awesome. We're trucking along and we're, 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 we're just going to keep going. If we do hit a mm-hmm. little lull, right? Maybe after the first month, then we're going to go back to some of those things that maybe we suggested they do during their closure. When you do have your team still there and you want to be productive, you know, maybe that's the time to do some of that too. So I think we're all, all of us like coaches and consultants, or at least the ones that you and I know, we are trying to just carry the positivity, you know, flag and just try to keep everybody like, guys, it's going to be okay. Like we're going to get back to it. And also I think we just, we don't know. So we're just trying to help everybody kind of consider different things that might happen to be prepared. Well, I was, I was talking to a, an old client last week and I was saying to her, are you still going to have your meetings? Cause we had one of the struggles is we had set up meetings in her office, regular meetings, cause she had not been having them at all. And she said, well, we're probably going to take some off the table because we just need to get busy again. And I said, no, 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 please don't. I'm just begging you, please don't have your regular meetings because no one else you're not going to have check-in time other than those pre-planned meetings. So don't, I know it's a temptation, but please don't take those meetings off the table. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth, but she was like, all right, all right. So, <laughs> so she's going to do it. And, and I, but I understand yeah. though, she wants to get back yeah, to work. I understand it too. And, but here's the thing though, is that's going to be her opportunity to check in with the team and just say, how are we doing? How's everybody feeling with all of this? What are we hearing from patients? You know, what do we need to shift with our communication? Like you, you got to stay, you got to keep those check-ins in place or else, like you said, someone might burn out and just be like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. So I wanted to ask you too, another question that I, again, I think we're, we're so focused on what the PPE is going to be, the protection equipment. And we've been hearing so much about aerosols in the office. And I know a lot of people just automatically think about the drill, but your, your people are at significant risk with aerosols. Can you explain why? Just because I want them to hear it from somebody who's on the front line. So we are big, big, big and inspired hygiene proponents of ultrasonic scaling. And we have taught for years. And unless something changes dramatically, we will continue to teach that the ultrasonic is our primary scaling tool. We feel like it is more efficient. We feel like the lavage and the cavitation really helps disrupt the biofilm, remove calculus, all of those above things that reduces fatigue and all of that. Uh, what we do know is it creates aerosols. So there's water that's blowing out of the patient's mouth. One of the things that I'm trying to kind of wrap my brain around, I don't know this yet. So my next, my next venture. So aside from like all of us helping our clients and doing these informational podcasts and things like that, we're all also taking all of this in, right? And it started with like all the government stimulus and relief and like that. And then like, what do we do when we reopen? And now for me, my focus to educate myself is on the infection prevention, which is what I'm loving this new term and really learning from some of the experts in our field about that. And so I think that hygienists at a minimum will have to utilize high-speed high evacuation for, so high-speed suction when using ultrasonics. 
And there are several devices out there that will hold a mirror as well. So basically a mirror slides into the suction tip. So you have like oh, a, wow. you have like a two in one. So there's lots of different products out there that are going to address it. And I'm sure there will be more. I've seen some like over the patient suction devices that are pulling things out of the air. Don't know what the promises of that or what the cost and all of is of that. But I think the other thing I'm trying to wrap my brain around is some of the PPE suggestions out there are based on treating patients that have active COVID. And you're going to do everything that you can to avoid treating a patient with active COVID. Now, not everybody, we're not going to know everybody has the virus if they're asymptomatic, but you're going to likely be doing some pre-screening. And if there's anybody that you have a question, you're going to ask them to wait, right? I think that's important to remember too, is you're not going to be treating knowing, you're not going to knowingly be treating active COVID patients, but it does because all that aerosol goes right up all over us. So Oh my gosh, all over. I mean, as a patient, it's all over. So I can imagine all day, it's all over you guys. I mean, I know one one hygienist, she wears a hair covering. I would, yeah, I would. I I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, even before all of this, honestly. You know, when I worked in perio at UNC, we wore a surgical gown all day over our scrubs. We wore the same gown, so I don't know if we'll have to change those out. And they got washed every day, every, you know, they had the facility at the dental school to do all of that. I think at a minimum, it will be either a disposable or a a cloth surgical gown over our scrubs that will, that, you know, ties at the back kind of thing. We will probably wear a head covering and we'll wear a higher, probably a higher type of mask, a more protective type of mask and a face shield. The question is about loops, which we also, like, I would not be able to work without loops. I think that's going to be have to be an issue that's solved. And I'm sure that that's also being worked on too, is how do we use loops with the face shield and that kind of thing. I would imagine that the loops company have to be all over this, like, because they want their loops to be used. I would imagine, I would hope that they're all over this and working with the protect, you know, the, those companies. So with, with all of this that you're going to be wearing, I imagine we got to turn the air conditioning yeah. on like 50. all year because it's so hot yeah. with all that stuff on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But at the same time, maybe you don't have to wear as much makeup if you you don't have to do your hair because nobody's gonna see you don't have to do your hair you don't have to wear makeup you will not be recognized in the grocery store anymore right because no one's gonna see you but if you're wearing that's awesome for me because as far as uh, sending people to collections well yeah i mean i send them to collections i don't want to see them in the store you know So you're saying that you think the administrative team should don all of that as well. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm kind of joking are. about it. So sometimes it would have been nice, yeah. you know, so wear like that bee helmet up front. So, but, yeah, I think, yeah, I think this thing. But I do are. worry about the, the admin side. I do worry about that because they're scared too. Yeah. I mean, I, the assistants for sure are scared right now, but even the admin team is scared because they're going to be touching all this stuff and, you know, patients come up and they're drooling and they wipe their mouth. And I mean, and I know some dentists are putting up the protective plexiglass, which is just so ugly, but I yeah. get it. Yeah, at least for a while. But I think your point is really good to take a picture to show what the difference is going to be so people aren't so shocked when they come in. I think that's genius. So that, that's a good tip. We'll definitely call that out in the show notes as well. Is there anything else you want to add? Because I didn't think this was going to fly by, but it sure did. And I had so many more questions to ask you. So you're going to have to come back for a round two. There's just, you know, you just have to. What else do you want to add to yeah, the Yeah, I'd this? love to share our resource page that's up right now. I don't know how long we'll be keeping that up. I know folks go back if they're like me and listen to podcasts years later, but it's inspiredhygiene.com slash resources. 
And on that page, we just put up a bunch of things that, you know, folks can do now while they're closed to just evaluate your standard of care. So once you've staged and graded the patient, now what? What are you going to do as a team? At what point are you moving that patient from a prophy into periotherapy? So establishing those standards is really important. There's a really quick little tool that you can use there to kind of identify uh, where you are compared to some industry benchmarks for the hygiene department. It's called the mini hygiene analysis tool. You can grab our book there. Our book does not have the new AAP staging grading in it yet. I've got to rewrite that, update that, and add that. But just a, a lot of good resources there for folks on that. The book is awesome. Thank I give you. that out a lot at my classes. Yeah, Return on Hygiene, and even without the AAP guidelines, it's still a very good read. If you don't have that, even administrators, even though it says Return on Hygiene, it's for us as well, really for us. So I really like the book, Rachel, in case you haven't noticed. So, <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. I would highly advise that you follow Inspired Hygiene, Facebook, Instagram, all those places, LinkedIn, and keep up with where they are. I know you have an upcoming events tab, you know, in your newsletter, you say, where are you going to find us? And I love seeing all the faces. I don't know if we're doing very many live events right now, but when we do go back to that, you know, definitely keep up with it. You guys cover the whole country, right? With all your coaches. Mm -hmm. So do that. And uh, I hope that you're able to take this information and take it back to your team and have a nice positive team meeting about it and start off on the right foot after all of this. And Rachel, thank you. I I know I tease you a lot, but I really am appreciative that you came on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank Thank you you for the opportunity, Teresa. I love it. Absolutely. So again, uh, dear listeners, thank you for your feedback and your questions. Keep them coming. And as always, I thank you so much for spending your time with me. Subscribe to this podcast so you'll get our next candid discussion. Visit Teresa's website, odysseymgmt.com. That's odysseymgmt.com for more information on Teresa's courses, books, and speaking schedule. Subscribe to her newsletter while you're there. Don't say we didn't tell you that.